Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Sarah Churchwell on Trump, America First and the American Dream in her book, Behold America. Sarah Churchwell is Professor of American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. She is the author of Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, which we talked about on a previous Little Atoms, and The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. Her literary journalism has appeared widely in newspapers and she comments regularly on arts, culture and politics for television and radio, where appearances include Question Time, Newsnight and The Review Show. She has judged many literary prizes, including the 2017 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction and the 2014 Man Booker Prize, and she was co-winner of the 2015 Eccles British Library Writers Award. Sarah's latest book is Behold America, a history of America first and the American dream, which we're going to talk about today. Sarah, welcome back. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about how this book came about, mm. first of all. Like, why now? <laughs> well, um, this book is very much responding to current events in a way that none of my work has before. But it really comes out of the previous book that you mentioned, um, Careless People, which, as you say, we talked about some years ago now. And what happened is that I discovered that if you write a book about The Great Gatsby, which is what that book is about, you get asked to talk about the American dream a lot because, of course, it's the great novel of the American dream. Even though it never mentioned the American exactly. dream. Exactly. It never uses that phrase, which actually is at the is at the heart of, of what I started doing. So because people kept saying, oh, The Great Gatsby, great, can you talk about the American dream? And then I always had to say, well, but actually, it's before the American dream, and there isn't an American dream yet. I started elaborating on that history of the kind of lineage of the phrase, the American dream. When did it become popularized? What was it being used to talk about? Um, And that was something that I was giving lectures on, and I'd done some journalism based on those. And it just sort of evolved very naturally and very organically as I kind of chased these ideas. And, And the further I went back, so this was sort of over the course of, say, five years or so. And as I say, very kind of organically, just now and then, not because somebody would ask me a lecture or I'd do some journalism or something would come up. And I discovered that every time I thought I had a starting point, 
uh, I would find an earlier one. And every time I would write a piece of journalism definitively saying, this is the earliest known use, then I would find an earlier one. So partly this was, I wanted to just try to say, can I now be definitive? Can I, or if not definitive, at least say, this is the best I can do in terms of tracing the idea. But then what happened is that as I was thinking about that, certain kinds of political phenomena started to occur on both sides of the Atlantic. And in particular in the United States, the rise of Trump uh, very much converged with the ideas of what I was talking about with the history of the American dream. And of course, what happened was that as Trump started to consolidate his campaign, he started using his own catchphrase, which was not the American dream, but America first. And America first was a phrase I was familiar with because that too is in the cultural conversation around Gatsby from the 1920s and 1930s. And when Trump brought it back, people kept talking about the history of the phrase America first beginning in 1940 and 1941. But as I was well aware from the research I had done, there was a good 20, 30 years um, in which it was an incredibly prominent and influential part of the American political discourse. So I just thought, you know, there's there's something really important here to be explained about the ways in which the roots of Trumpism are earlier than people think. In many ways, this is not as much of an aberration as people think it is. I wish it were more of an aberration in American history. And nobody was talking about the ways in which these phrases evolved in ways that were they were in tandem with each other. And they were and they were almost well, at various points in the story that I tell, they come into direct conflict. So I just kind of thought there was this stuff that was in my head about these phrases and nobody was talking about it. And I thought it was really important. And as I say, I hoped that it would become a way of better understanding both where Trumpism comes from and also hopefully how to combat it. And you said that that idea had been going around in your head for years, mm. basically, but then Trump comes along and makes things more urgent. Yeah. Now, not that you can tell because this is a, a big, thick... Yeah, heavily footnoted, <laughs> you know, heavily researched book. But I understand that, you know, the final thing happened really quickly. Really quickly. So um, a year ago, this book, I was really just starting to sit down to write this book. And for people who haven't published, they may not realize that there's usually a long lead time. So normally for a book to be out in May of 2018, as this book came out, it would have been delivered in May of 2017. But I hadn't even started writing it in May of 2017. So everybody was working at a really accelerated clip. Now, that said, as I said, there was some journalism here and there were some lectures. So I wasn't starting from complete scratch. And obviously, I'd done a lot of the research. But in terms of sitting down and writing this as a book, I did do it really fast. And I just did it over the course of last summer, really. So between June and August was when I wrote the first draft. I originally thought it would be a short book, which was partly why I thought I could do it so fast. So um, I pitched something along the length of The Great Gatsby, which, of course, is such a slim book. It's about 40,000 words. And what I actually submitted was about 90,000 words. Um, and at first, I thought my editor was going to be like, you're out of your mind. But it became clear to both of us that the, the more that I dug, the more I was turning up and that it was, you know, there's no filler here, I don't think. I and mean, this this all, if anything, it could have, it could well have been expanded. I mean, I had to cut out the whole second half of the 20th century for starters. Um, so, yeah, so I wrote it. I wrote 90,000 words in about three months is what it came down to. As we'll get on to, the story of both these phrases has largely been forgotten mm. and their meaning has come to mean Something else, or at least we think they mean something else. Yeah. So the research of this book involved basically poring over lots and lots of, you know, stories in local papers yeah. back in the day. Tell us something about the research for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, for me, one of the most exciting parts of it was the research. And I hope that's one of the more novel aspects of the book is that because, of course, computers let us do searches that we wouldn't but you can't do with the naked eye and, and to trawl across vast, you know, digital landscapes, textual landscapes that, again, would have taken a decade for me to try to do, even if I could have. 
what happened was, in the case of both of these phrases, I realized that the popular conversations around them were misinformed. And those popular conversations were both heavily mediated by the media, by historians, by our received wisdoms about American history, what we think we know, what we think we've always known. So my purpose was to try to forget those received wisdoms, to try to go back to first principles and say, okay, instead of assuming that what historians, and, and I'm not having a go at historians here, I'm one too, right? But that what version through history that we have received of what these phrases mean, or through the media, through pundits and, and commentators talking particularly about the rise of America first. As I say, we, we get these kind of fixed ideas. And so I thought, well, let's go back to the original sources and, and try without preconception, without prejudice, to find what were ordinary Americans saying as these phrases emerged and not only look at influential voices. So precisely not do the American dream as told by Scott Fitzgerald, although, of course, he does have to make an appearance in the book. But people might be surprised at how little space I, as a Fitzgerald scholar, give Fitzgerald in this book. And that was a very deliberate decision to say, I didn't want to just stick with the newspapers of record. It's not just the New York Times or even the big urban papers, and certainly not sticking to one political viewpoint or another. So what I tried to do was to range across the country as fully and comprehensively as I could to the littlest papers and to assume that anything that was as arbitrary as what I was looking at in one sense in terms of, of that I was never I was never foreclosing the possibility of looking at any given newspaper, that by definition then it would be a, a pretty random sampling of political viewpoints because these would be people just writing into their local papers. So and if you make sure that the that all the regions are covered, then you're going to get a pretty good snapshot at any given time of different political um, points of view. And it was very important then that I not cherry pick my evidence, that what I didn't do was eliminate anything that would be counter to the narrative that I was telling, at least not to the best of my ability. So the, the whole idea here was to try to say, across the country in 1915, 1920, 1925, what did people understand the American dream to mean? What did they understand America first to mean? What were they using it to denote? And it turns out that if you do that and you forget what historians and, and cultural commentators and pundits like me told us all for decades, it turns out that there's a very different story there. Okay, well, although we want to forget the, the received wisdom that we've learned, let's establish, first of all, what do we think we mean when we talk about the American dream now? Yeah, so I think my understanding of, of the popular meaning of American dream is pretty uncontested and pretty uncontroversial. We use it now, almost universally, to mean the idea of um, what's called the Horatio Alger ethic, the idea of rags to riches prosperity, that America is a land of opportunity where you can, it's the American success story where you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and, you know, and make a success out of life through um, individual endeavor, through hard work, and through and through the, the promises made by America of equality of opportunity. So I think that's a very standard notion of what people mean by the American dream. And it's why people are so understandably upset now with the feeling with rampant inequality, with rampant injustice of all various kinds, this sense that that American dream is not available to ordinary Americans anymore. And then you get people saying, well, maybe it never was. And so that tends to be the debate. Well, let's just talk about the, there's that idea of the American dream. It sort of like ironically has, I guess, a downside in that because America has this fantasy of people being self-made and self-bought up, that means they have a different view than we do in Europe about the safety nets for when things go wrong. Exactly. So what happens is, uh, you know, Americans do not remind each other ourselves of the fact that any self-made man or less often self-made woman is not as self-made as they appear and that anybody 
who does well is relying on various kinds of social structures. I mean, certain influential voices in the United States are starting to point this out. Elizabeth Warren has done it beautifully on a few occasions that have become memes and, you know, travel all over social media, rightly so, where, you know, she says things like, you know, if you built a factory out of nothing, good for you, God bless, but you didn't build it out of nothing. You carried your goods on roads that were built by taxes. You were protected by police. You know, all of those arguments about the social contract and that nobody is actually going it alone. But the American myth says that, you know, so that people like Mitt Romney will stand up and say that he is a self-made man. He's not a self-made man. Um, and the idea that Donald Trump is a self-made man is just absolutely, I mean, it's just ludicrous. Um, so people who've inherited wealth, who've inherited position, who went to the best universities in the country, think that they're self-made people because the national ethos lets you believe that. And then we tell each other that. And and this is something that's been um, talked about by social critics of the United States for a century and more. I mean, most prominently by the theorists of the so-called Frankfurt School, the Marxists who fled um, Nazi Germany and came to America. And then Adorno and Hork- Horkheimer had the, the famous argument that the American dream basically functions as a lottery. Um, and it's the lottery that everybody plays, nobody wins. But because everybody thinks they can win the lottery, it works to defer a revolution. Because nobody acts collectively. Everybody thinks that individually they can win. Um, and so it becomes a rigged game. And again, that under that social critique of America is increasingly familiar. Lots of people would recognize that as a viable critique. But, but the vast majority of, quote unquote, ordinary Americans are still, I think it's safe to say, very invested in the idea that individuals can make it on their own. Um, and, and so people, you know, um, historians and, and people like us are, are pointing out that you're really never making it on your own. Um, And that's an important thing to recognize. But yes, it means that Americans feel very strongly about individual responsibility. They feel very strongly that the state should not be what you look to to take care of yourself or your family. They feel very strongly that that is a value system and ethos that they believe in, some of them religiously, that this is that it is your responsibility to look after yourself and that anybody who fails to do so is just simply a failure, that it's not in any way that the system let them down because these people don't recognize that the system could let you down and they insist that it's a level playing field when, of course, there's a great deal of evidence to show that it is not. And ironically, of course, the, the original meaning when we We'll talk about when this phrase first starts to appear in print, but it meant completely the opposite. Exactly. 180 degrees different. And that was what the, the story that seemed to me worth telling. If it, if it was merely the case that the American dream sometimes meant something else occasionally in somebody's voice, well, that's not a very compelling story. But the fact is, is that 100 years ago, when the phrase started consolidate as a way to talk about a national value system, it came from voices on the left, not on the right. And it was not there to argue for the benefit of free market capitalism, for individual prosperity. It was there to argue that individual prosperity and democracy and equality would be threatened if capitalism was allowed to continue unchecked. So they said that rampant capitalism will destroy the American dream of equality, the American dream of justice, the American dream of democracy. And so although it was it was employed in, an, in a debate about individual responsibility and capitalism, it was employed on the opposite side of the one that we now use it to. It was not advocating for free market economy it was advocating against them and saying that that a totally free market, that a radically free market economy would destroy the American founding principles, the political philosophy of democracy, equality, justice, and liberty for all. So when does when does the usage change? Then what's the point where we start to see the American dream as being about economic well-being? Well, it changed after the Second World War. So 
what happened was the easiest way to chart it, I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to establish in any definitive way when a cultural shift takes place or to point at a, at a specific moment in time where a culture changed its mind about something, right? So you can't do that. Um, but there are moments that are kind of emblematic. And so a good one, I think, is, is to look at the shift between the 1930s and the 1940s the phrase American dream didn't become popularized, although we're talking about the ways it consolidated. So it starts to emerge, but it's not a kind of, it's not a buzz phrase that's sweeping the nation um, until 1931, until the Great Depression. And at that point, it did become a national catchphrase. Everybody was using it in the 30s to debate where America had gone wrong um, after the crash and what it should do to revive the American dream and what did the American dream look like. They really reexamined it. And over the course of the 30s, it became very strongly associated with FDR's New Deal, with the building of that welfare state, of the social protections that we were just talking about. When the United States, for the first time, I mean, we, the, America had never had federal welfare programs. It wasn't something that Americans believed in. But increasingly, it became clear that in that in you know, on an industrial scale in a post-industrial society that you, it just is, is a fantasy to pretend that the individuals, that individual equality is protected by not protecting them from forces that are bigger than themselves. And that was something that the, the idea that many Americans in the 30s really took on board. And so the American dream became very strongly associated with the ideals and the values of the welfare state. So you get things like uh, the New York Times talking about the American dream of universal health care, which is a kind of unimaginable thing um, for anybody to say today, right? Um, the American dream of social housing, the American dream of national pension system, what became uh, social security. So all of those were seen as American dreams. And it's possible to affiliate those with, with an ethos that FDR articulated in a famous speech called the Four Freedoms Speech. And what he said in that speech was, there are four foundational freedoms of America, but indeed of any liberal democracy. And those four freedoms are freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And that's basically, as historians have rightly pointed out, a kind of ethos articulating the tenets of social democracy. So the state has an obligation to protect individuals from want and from fear. What happened was that then after the Second World War, FDR's successor, Harry Truman, in 1947, gave a speech where he changed the four freedoms to three freedoms. And he said the first two remained inviolable, freedom of speech and freedom of religion. But instead of freedom from fear and freedom from want, he posited that America was founded on freedom of enterprise, another very familiar phrase. It's hard to imagine today that before 1947, that was by no means an uncontested American ideal. But boy, did that one work, right? I mean, that embedded very, very quickly, and it became associated with the American dream very rapidly as American post-war prosperity was weaponized, to use a modern word, in the Cold War as a way of proving the moral victory of American democracy, of liberal democracy. So because we had Frigidaires, we were getting it right, and the Soviet Union was getting it wrong. And that's why we were going to win the Cold War was with consumer capitalism. And the American dream became conflated with prosperity, consumerism, um, and freedom of enterprise. And at that point, they kind of locked in together. And since then, those ideas have only become more and more intricately bound up. And by the 80s, it was pretty calcified. But under Reagan, there it was sort of nobody was questioning anymore that the American dream could mean anything other than prosperity and uh, you know American consumer capitalism, as I say, as a kind of proof that American democracy works.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Churchwell and we're talking about her book Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream. And Sarah, we'll we'll start to talk about America First next. Um, But to do that, I want to bring in, I'm sorry to say, The Great Gatsby again for a moment. Never apologise for bringing in The Great Gatsby. (laughs) Um, Well, you mentioned that you don't talk about it too much in the book although you do you do you cover some of the writers who were around at the time uh, both Fitzgerald and and others who were commented on those sort of ideas yeah. that would become the American dream and and I think you know we talked when we talked before that you know the great Gatsby is a book that's often misread it is about the American dream but people often misread what Fitzgerald was getting at and I think one of the things that's often forgotten about it even more is that the antagonist of the book Tom Buchanan is basically a white supremacist. And Fitzgerald uses this unambiguously to to mock him, to say that, you know, to point out that, you know, morally he's a fool. What I didn't know when we talked about The Great Gatsby before and what Fitzgerald obviously would have known was at the time that he was writing it, the Klan were active on Long Island. Yeah, exactly. So The Great Gatsby is written in 1924, published at the beginning of 1925. People tend to think about the Ku Klux Klan as an American phenomenon of the South, um, but that just simply isn't the case. And in the 1920s, the Klan spread all the way up, all the way up to the North. They bragged in the in mid-1920s, right when Fitzgerald was writing The Great Gatsby, they boasted that they had mayors from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, from coast to coast. Their highest concentration of membership was in Indiana in the Midwest and in Illinois, where I'm from. And lynchings were spreading as well. So lynchings were occurring in the early 1920s as far north as Duluth, Minnesota, in Oakland, California, in places that we now think of maybe as liberal bastions. But they were home to summary violence. And it's important to say that that lynching also, and we don't have to go into too much detail about it because it's a very brutal history, but it's important that people understand that the received wisdom, to use that phrase once more, about lynching usually tends to camouflage how brutal the atrocities really were. It was not always or even usually the case that a lynching meant simply that somebody was furtively grabbed and hanged in the woods. Um, That would have been a kind outcome for many of the victims of American lynching. They were tortured. They were dismembered. They were burned at the stake. Many people were burned at the stake in the first decades of the 20th century in the United States. And people would come from miles around to watch it. They would announce it in the news. So the menace of the KKK was very, very real. We're not just talking about, about intimidation and harassment campaigns like burning crosses in somebody's lawn, as bad as that is, I'm obviously not saying that would be okay. But we're talking about about medieval violence, okay? Dismemberment, torture, public execution, public summary execution, with law officials standing by cheering things on, crowds of 10,000, 20,000 school children on their lunch break watching American citizens be murdered. So you have to understand that that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Klan of the teens and, and 1920s. And again, as you say, that's what Fitzgerald, that's a reality that Fitzgerald and all of his peers, of course, would have been very well aware of. In the year that The Great Gatsby is set, um, it takes place during 1922. There was a federal bill called the Dyer Anti-Lynching Bill, which was debated throughout the United States, um, and particularly it was, it was debated in, in Congress. There were over 200 attempts to pass a federal anti-lynching bill, and in 1922 it failed yet again. Um, in fact, Congress would never pass a federal anti-lynching bill. In other words, the U.S. government never said that lynching was wrong. 
They never passed a law saying that lynching should be prosecuted um, fully, and they left it to states to do it, which too often didn't. So that's the background, right? And so what was happening was that in in 1922 and 1923, the New York Times and other New York papers were covering the fact that the Klan was infiltrating New York. The mayor was giving speeches saying that they had to be routed out of Manhattan, and they were very influential on Long Island. There was an initiation ceremony in 1923 while Fitzgerald was living there, you know, maybe 20 miles from where he was living and where the action of the Great Gatsby takes place, where 25,000 new Klansmen were said to be initiated. And this was all headline news. So he was very well aware of it. He was probably driving past Klan rallies. They were making their way into national parades like Memorial Day parades. So he was very aware of it. And so it's not an arbitrary choice. And sometimes when people read Gatsby today, they do kind of wonder, what, what is this weird sudden moment where Buchanan is a white supremacist? But it's not arbitrary at all. What Fitzgerald is doing is signaling his awareness that American capitalism, that the power that Tom Buchanan has, his plutocratic power, is predicated on white supremacy, always was, and that that industrial might came out of a post-institutionalized slavery system. And Fitzgerald is very well aware that he writes about it explicitly in other places. So I'm not imputing this to him. I know he was thinking about it consciously. And so the degree to which Tom Buchanan's white supremacism is an aspect of a very prevalent political discourse in the United States at that time has really, really been overlooked and forgotten. And in particular, of course, what Buchanan calls himself is a Nordicist, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know if you want me to get into Nordicism. Yes, Nordicism. I was just going to ask next, what is, yeah. what is Nordism? Right. Nordicism. So, Nordicism. So, he, so Buchanan doesn't say I'm a white supremacist. He says I'm a Nordic. I'm a Nordic, you're a Nordic, and you're a Nordic, he says to his dinner guests. Nordic was used at this time in, in Britain, I, I should say, as well as in the United States, in exactly the same way. It is exactly analogous to the way the Nazis used air. It means exactly the same thing. It means a higher race. It means the right kind of white person. It means Caucasian or Anglo-Saxon or blonde or Northern European or whatever the person using it wants to mean. But what it means is non-black, non-Jewish, non-suspicious, non-dubious. And in particular, Nordicism was a theory like Arianism of eugenic scientific racism. So it held that people from Northern Europe were biologically superior to people from Southern and Eastern Europe, let alone anywhere else in the world. And the ideas of Nordicism were taken on board by the KKK. The KKK all the way through the 1920s was marching with banners that said, we are Nordicists, we are Nordic Americans. So to be clear, that doesn't mean they're from Norway. They could have any kind of ancestry, but they were claiming this kind of, it was like saying I'm Aryan, right? And then they would also, so they would have these signs that say, you know, we're we're for Nordicism. And then the person next to them would be holding a sign that said America first. The KKK was very strongly associated with the phrase America first. And America first was very closely intertwined with these ideas of Nordicism and scientific uh, racism, of eugenicism, the idea that white people are biologically superior to non-white people. And again, this aspect of it might seem like some sort of like arcane, laughable, artifact from the past like people measuring schools and things but Donald Trump himself in a in a very recent speech talking about you know to paraphrase talking about immigration said you know we don't want people from you know these shitholes in Africa or whatever we want more 
He said, why people from Norway? He said, why don't we get more people from Norway? And that was in January 2018, right? That was six months ago. And at the time, people, you know, again, you see with the punditry, people not quite getting it. So what most of the articles said were things like they got that, of course, Norway is overwhelmingly white. Everybody saw that. But they tended to act as if he had sort of stumbled on that, as if he just was sort of plucking that place out of a hat. And, you know, he could just as well have said Sweden, but actually he was just trying to think of a white place. And that's just what popped into Donald Trump's, you know, um, impulsive mind. But that isn't the case at all. The example of Norway was a very specific one. And there's a lot of evidence to show that Donald Trump knows exactly what that means. And so do his advisors. If you just Google the word Nordicism and the phrase America first, one of the first things that you will pull up is the neo-Nazi website Stormfront, where they continue to debate in association with the idea of America first, whether we should bring Nordicism back, in their view, to the United States. Now, of course, Nordicism was never in the United States. That's part of the fantasy, this idea that there was ever a pure white America, as if indigenous peoples and slaves were never there. So this is always already a fantasy that they're prepared to try to realize through violent means. But it's there. It's very, very active. And in response to the terrible events in Charlottesville last summer, there was a, an America First rally at Laguna Beach in California. And you can just get on these right-wing websites, I'm sorry to say, it's very easy to do. And there they are talking about America First and Nordicism. And there's one that I found where this guy is arguing that Nordicism, it, Nordicism is why Americans are better entrepreneurs. So you can see that it's a kind of weird, updated, distorted version of it. But those ideas are very, very active. And it is a dog whistle. That was absolutely a dog whistle. People like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, who are, of course, uh, Trump's advisor. Stephen Miller is the one behind this absolutely disgusting um, policy of ripping children away from their families at the American borders. These are all attempts to, to shift the demographic map back. They simply want to pretend that um, you can make America, keep America white. That's it's, Make America great again is a very clear code for make America white again. That's what they're saying. And um, Jeff Sessions is actually one of the ones who's been the most outspoken about this. Um, he has said that he wants to return the American demographic map and, and the immigration laws to what they were in 1924, exactly again when Fitzgerald was writing The Great Gatsby. The most restrictive immigration act in American history was passed um, called the Johnson-Reed Act, in which 90 percent of new immigration was banned. And they established these tiny quotas from only Nordic countries. And all the other countries were basically excluded. Um, and and Sessions has said that's the America he wants to go back to. So that's where we are. So that's why this history is so relevant. This is not a coincidence. And as I've said in a few lectures I've done, I'm not the one bringing up ancient history. They are. So I want to get to the, the roots again. The point of the book is let's explore the roots of where this America First idea comes from. And again, perhaps the, the myth that we think now around America First is it is it comes around before the Second World War. And, you know, people think of Charles Lindbergh and, and America First and, and American exceptionalism and not wanting to get in, involved in the Second World War. But its its roots do go further back than that. And at the beginning of the book, your root is in this Memorial Day march that's taking place in Queens in 1927, which lots of people are taking part in this march, but the Klan have been invited, a delegation of the Klan are, are taking part, taking place in this march. There's trouble, there's violence, because you know, even back then people were you know, against this taking place and there Definitely. was fighting and you know, a couple of members of the Klan were, you know, were, were beaten up and stuff. And, and there's... A number of people are arrested 
at this march. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So exactly. So it's been latterly described as a KKK rally. And as you just rightly said, that's not what it was. It was a Memorial Day parade where, you know, Red Cross workers were marching and veterans from the wars were marching. And um, and so there were lots of perfectly nice people marching in, the, in that parade. And there were 20,000 spectators um, there to watch the Memorial Day parade. But controversially, the Klan had been given a permit and allowed to march. And there were about a thousand members of the of the Klan, which was all, all male at that point, and then 400 members of the so-called Klavana, which was the female clan. So about 1,400 of them. They had been told that they could march if they weren't in robes, and then they decided to march in their robes and their hoods, and that was a provocation. And so, yes, so it sparked this um, these scuffles among the bystanders, and then that became a full-blown riot. And the police were called. Um, and as you say, the, the riot was on both sides, right? People were saying they had the right under free speech. Again, these debates should sound really familiar. Um, they had the right under free speech and um, free assembly to be marching. And others said that this was totally un-American and, they, and that it was despicable and they wanted nothing to do with it. So very, very familiar debates play out and it broke out into, into riots. Eventually, seven people were arrested, one of whom was immediately released because it turned out that had been a mistake. But so the numbers slightly vary, which makes means that people start to say that this is fake news, you know, because if you can't get everything rock solidly consistent, but it's because there was this little bit of confusion about one person. And then five avowed Klansmen. That's how the papers describe them, right? So they self-identified as Klansmen. They were presumably in robes. They were all named, their addresses given, and they were arraigned in front of a judge. And the sixth, who was not an avowed Klansman, or he's not identified as such in the newspaper reports at the time, who was not charged but he was arraigned, which means that he there was they found enough probable cause to put him before a judge. So they didn't just release him the way they did the seventh guy. So it wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just a mistake. And that man was a 21-year-old uh, German-American named Fred C. Trump. And he was Donald Trump's father. This was 20 years. So as he was 21 years old. Um, it was 20 years before Trump was born. Trump was uh, Fred's youngest son, and Fred was in his 40s when he had um, Donald. And so one of the reasons why I think that this history is so important is for people to remember. You know, Donald Trump is what 73 now. Um, he was born 46. So no, sorry, 72. But as I say, his father was in his 40s when Trump was born, which means that his father's memory were one generation away. Were within living memory of this kind of America first KKK belief system, of this eugenicism, of, of th- this scientific racism. So for people to say, as you as you said a moment ago, oh, this is this, you know, kind of remnant of an archaic past. No, this is what Donald Trump could well have learned at his father's um, feet, because his father was an adult during the time when these ideas were widespread. And as I say, he got arrested along with five members of the Klan. So that's so some people have said wrongly that Trump was a card-carrying Klan member. We don't have evidence of that. They've said it was a Klan rally. It was not a Klan rally. He could have been among the innocent bystanders. But it is remarkable that among the 20,000 innocent bystanders, only six people were actually arraigned. Five of them were avowed Klansmen, and the sixth was Fred Trump. And Fred Trump would go on to have a very prominent career as a racist. So nothing about his later career suggests that he was there to protest against the Klan. And we know he had a prominent career as a racist because uh, none of the personages of Woody Guthrie actually wrote a song about it. Indeed, Woody Guthrie lived in um, one of Fred Trump's um, developments um, at kind of tenement housing that Trump built his his misbegotten fortune on. And um, by the way, he also got that through fraudulent loans from the U.S. government. So for all of these people who are screaming about um, they never take government handouts, Fred Trump literally built this property empire on fraudulent loans from the U.S. government, which he admitted um, before Congress. So I'm not making that up or accusing him of fraud. He admitted it before the uh, at a hearing before the Congress. And he was and he was obviously dodgy enough that the 
Senate called him in to account for himself. So, um, yeah, so Woody Guthrie was living in one of these Brooklyn tenements, and he was so outraged by what he saw as the overt racism of um, Fred Trump's housing policies that he wrote a song calling old man Trump a racist in the 50s. You have to be going pretty, you know, um, pretty well for in, in the American 1950s for somebody to call you a flat out racist. And then by 1973, when Donald took over the property empire, he and Fred were both sued by the Department of Justice for racial discrimination in their housing policies. And I would just remind our audience that the um, Department of Justice at that point was the Nixon administration. So again, you have to be doing pretty well as a racist to get the Nixon administration to sue you for racial discrimination. I mean, it was so egregious that even the Nixon administration couldn't turn a blind eye to it. And then, of course, there's Donald's own terrible history with things like the Central Park Five, you know, the five young black men who were wrongfully arrested and um, imprisoned for many years for raping a white woman in in Central Park and who were later acquitted uh, definitively. The DNA evidence made very clear that it wasn't them. They found the actual rapist. And Donald Trump refused ever to apologize to the Central Park Five. He continued to say for years that they were guilty and to say that it was the greatest miscarriage of American justice that they had been released, although all the evidence made very clear that these young black men were in no way guilty. And these are just, the mo- again, the most prominent examples of the racism that the Trump family has very evidently um, been systematically engaged in. And there's lots of other as well. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Churchwell and we're talking about her book Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream. So we keep sort of skirting around it, but let's go back to the beginning Mm. of when we first hear the phrase America First. Has it always been linked with those ideas of white supremacism. You talk in the book about people who would describe themselves as 100% American, and again, that was sort of all linked to the, you know, the one drop of blood stuff. And But again, I mentioned that the idea, we think the idea of America first comes from a, a section of Americans not wanting to be involved in the Second World War. But actually, if we go back to the First World War, it comes around ideas of, you know, the, the possibility of American neutrality and that war. And actually, when you think about it, that wasn't such a bad idea. America was a country that was at that time still filling up with immigrants whose families had probably fought against the British Empire or had, you know, had had the British Empire, Indeed. you know, screw them over at some point. <laughs> Indeed. And of course, they, they, it was full of immigrants from both sides of the conflict. Mm-hmm. So which side of the conflict would America enter in on? The side of Italian-Americans and Irish-Americans? Well, Irish-Americans were not um, involved at that point, but also, uh, or, or, you know, on the side of German-Americans. So exactly. So Irish-Americans were, of course, who were very populous at the time, were outraged at the idea that they would enter into an alliance on the side of the British Empire. Exactly as you say, they had, they'd come to the United States to escape conditions created by British rule. Um, they were the avowed enemies of the British Empire. So, And it's important to remember that, that the so-called special relationship between Britain and America is very much a post-Second World War phenomenon as well. I mean, even within the memory of, of Americans or, you know, their grandparents, at the time of the First World War, it was only a century since we had fought the War of 1812. There was no, by no means a sense that Britain was our, our automatic ally. Um, on the contrary, it was an old enemy. And um, and as I say, the Irish in particular felt very strongly about that. Meanwhile, you have uh, German-Americans, a huge swathe of German-Americans. So American neutrality and, and Italian-Americans. So American neutrality was a complex, a very delicate uh, negotiation for the American government. Um, and there were good reasons, exactly, that, that were not down to pure isolationism. That said, there was a lot of pure isolationism in the country as well. There was a very strong feeling that America should steer clear of what were known at the time as entangling alliances, which is a a slight misquotation of George Washington's farewell address in 1796, where he told America not to enter into any permanent alliances abroad. And that became distorted over time into the idea that America should sort of stay out of the rest of the world, although Washington does not say that and and did not say that. But so there was this kind of shibboleth of uh, no entangling alliances that America should go it alone in the world and that the the oceans would be sufficient to protect it. Of course, this is just as uh, airplanes are starting to change that sense of defenses. Um, Of course, in the First World War, the first war to have airborne combat. So America still feels kind of impregnable at this point. And America First was used by um, the incumbent president, um, Woodrow Wilson, in 1915, of course, the now known as the great internationalist. So it's ironic that he would be the one who would popularize this phrase, America First. But he was using it as a way he was trying. He was basically prevaricating. So what he was trying to do was to have it both ways, because he's got these isolationists on the one hand. He's in a complete, you know, between a rock and a hard place. He himself is an internationalist. Um, his sympathies were increasingly moving against the German Empire and what was seen by many as a baldly militaristic move by the German 
Ottoman Empire. Um, by the point at which they start debating America first, Germany had already invaded Belgium, and there was very widespread sentiment in America against that, um, particularly because, of course, the U.S. as a neutral nation wanted uh, you know, the, the neutral nations to be respected. So the country's mood was shifting against Germany. And then, of course, there was the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, which only hardened that sentiment. But still, that question of what to do with the, the Irish Americans and with the isolationists, the people who didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so neutrality seemed like the best option. So Wilson gave the speech where he talked about America first and said, "America, we should be America first to lead, um, America first to be there in Europe, to pick up the pieces, whatever the outcome is. And we can do that best by keeping America morally strong. We can do that best by so far keeping America out of the war. Um, and that will mean putting America first in order that America can be first in the world to do good. So he's kind of, as I say, he's kind of trying to have it both ways. The phrase instantly got picked up as a slogan and very, very quickly became associated with pure isolationism. So it became it kind of, it kind of backfired. Um, his attempt to do actually very much backfired um, by the by the early 1920s. It was being used to beat him up. So it became very strongly associated with isolationism very quickly. And it was exactly at this moment that the KKK also rose up. And the KKK quickly took this phrase America first because it sounded like what they wanted to do. And they joined it with this idea of 100% Americanism, which was a, a kind of another word for uh, another phrase for Nordicism, also known as pure Americanism. As you say, it was the idea that only Americans who were 100% pure Americans, so no hybrids, no what they called hyphenates, because that implied divided loyalties. So they said German Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, Jewish Americans, these people were suspect. You had to be 100% American, which of course, as I say, is fantasy. But the other thing I talk about at some length in the book, because I think it's incredibly important for us to understand today, is that that idea of 100% American is, of course, um, very clearly eugenicist as a metaphor, that idea of purity, that idea of racial purity is very strongly, intuitively invoked by it. And as you said, this is a country that had long operated by the one drop rule that said that one drop of Negro blood made you legally subject to slavery. That meant that you were denied full human rights. And that goes back to the Constitution and its idea that, that the so-called um, three-fifths compromise, the idea that slaves were three-fifths of a human being. In other words, America was a country that was used to dividing people up into percentages, into fractions, into figuring out how American you were how, and what kind of legal rights would you have depending on that percentage composition of your heritage? This was a very, very familiar idea. So to start talking about 100% American very rapidly was conflated with and meant to be. It was a euphemism for 100% Anglo-Saxon. Well, it's ironic there that you, you talk about, you know, Italian Americans as being like part of the uh, the suspect group, because by the time we get to the, you know, the Charles Lindbergh America first idea again, lest anybody think that this is an idea that's about neutrality, about, you know, about America just keeping out of the war on either side. Mm. This is the point where there are literal Italian-Americans in jackboots marching yeah. in, in the cities. Indeed, in 1927, um, the same day that that Klan rally uh, happened where Fred Trump got, I, I said Klan rally, listen to me, the, the Memorial Day parade where the Klan uh, joined and Fred Trump got arrested on that same day, there were uh, Italian-American fascists who were in support of Mussolini, who of course came into power in 22. One of the things that surprised me in the research for this book, which I had sort of stumbled across but didn't really consolidate until I was writing it last 
last year was how early America First was associated with American fascism. The word fascism enters the English language when Mussolini takes power in 21-22. That's the earliest that you see it, except obviously quoting Latin or something. But um, as a political movement, it's 21-22. And um, almost instantly, I mean instantly, actually, I don't even have to qualify it, instantly, it was associated with America First. Um, newspapers across the country said, if you want to understand what this new thing fascism is, it's basically America First, but in Italy. And then they would similarly say, if you want to understand what this new thing the Klan is, it's basically what Mussolini is doing, but in America. So this idea that America First fascism, the Klan, were all tangled up with each other is much earlier than anybody thinks it is, but it continued all the way through the 30s. And so by the time you have what, what happens over the course of the rise of fascism and the association of America First with right-wing American fascist groups and nativist groups was this kind of natural feeling that that, as you say, ironically, it would start to come in on the side of fascist sympathies, even if those sympathies were Italian-American and German-American. Um, so it kind of does, a, um, as the American Dream did, it does its own version of 180 um, spin. But what stays consistent is its association with nativism, with eugenicism, um, with ideas of racial purity and white supremacism. And so by the late 1930s and early 1940s, when it was taken up by the America First Committee, which was the official version of the people trying to keep the U.S. out of the Second World War, the problem with the America First Committee was that at one point it had almost 800,000 members, but by no means all of those were fascist. I mean, be very clear about that. There were many pacifists. There were conscientious objectors. There were socialists. Um, there were all kinds of people there for all kinds of reasons who were – it was you know, an anti-war movement. It began as a student anti-war protest. But it also always had these fascist organizations affiliated with it as well, these far-right groups, one of which was called America First Incorporated, um, which was an avowedly anti-Semitic, very violently anti-Semitic organization. And so America First had, had kind of magnetically attracted these nativist, eugenicist ideas of fascism. And that meant that that group was very happy to be part of this idea called 100% America for Americans. So it was, it was joining up a lot of codes all at once and kind of muddying them all up in ways that are hard to disentangle. And that's what I was trying to do was to go back and separate them back out a little bit. And so what happens is that then, because there were these far right-wing sympathies and the idea of America first had become so entwined with that idea, what was known as the 100 percenters, they became called, which it was a kind of nickname for, you know, for saying, you know, fascist or Nazis or, or what have you. In America, they were known at the time as 100 percenters. And that was what they meant by that was that, what, you know, they basically would use 100 percenters the way we use alt-right. Alt basically. And so America First became a kind of, as I say, this kind of magnetic attraction for all of these ideas. And so it wasn't, it wasn't in any way counterintuitive for that to become a movement that seemed to be trying to keep America out of the war, um, not for moral reasons, but in order to appease the fascists, because they were actually on the side of the fascists. We're nearly out of time. And I wanted to finish off talking about I don't know, my last question here on my pad is, you know, does Trump really know what he's talking about here? And I think we've already demonstrated that he probably does. And if not, then certainly you, Steve Allen's and you, Steve Miller's certainly uh, definitely do certainly do. So I guess to finish off, though, where are we now? Right. We see pictures on the television of, you know, for want of a better word, internment camps. Yeah, for, that's a perfectly good word for, for immigrants and for, you know for children. Babies. Yeah, uh, babies are babies being separated. Cages. 
from their parents. I mean, where is this going? <laughs> well, um, I'm not going to make any predictions about where it's going. Um, or where are we? Yeah, where we are is where we were. Um, what what these people are doing is they are forcibly trying to return America to this fantasy they have of a white America before the 1965 Immigration Act opened up the United States for the first time to worldwide immigration without quotas. So the so that changed 50 years ago, and it did change the demographics of the United States. And there are many groups that are very angry about that. There is no immigration crisis. It's very clearly documented. That we, in fact, immigration levels are lower than they've been for a long time. Um, the illegal undocumented immigrants are lower than they've been for a long time. There's all kinds of evidence to show that this is all uh, spurious. But it's, it's all being, and it's really, really clear, they're pretty much not even high. It. So it's amazing that we have to kind of keep telling people this, um, that the um, they're doing it in order to to reject the uh, demographic fact that by 2015, white people will be in a minority. That's just a democratic fact. I mean, a, a demographic fact. It's also a democratic fact, which was a good Freudian slip um, on which end. It is a democratic fact and it is also a demographic fact. And I'm reminded um, by their efforts to kind of turn back the racial clock. And as I say, to, to a fantasy space anyway, America was never all white as if there were no indigenous peoples, as if we didn't have institutional slavery. For heaven's sake, it was never all white people. Like, get over it. You know, I mean, the whole thing is such a fantasy. The problem, as I say in the book, is that it's no less dangerous for being a fantasy. And in fact, it's arguably more dangerous mm -hmm. because they're trying to make the impossible come true and they're prepared to use violence to do it. So um, we're actually in a, in a very bad place. But I, I have been invoking an analogy that was made by Brian Cox, um, which I think is terrific. He was actually talking about Brexit, but it sure applies to um, the immigration situation in America as well. And he said, look, you can persuade voters to vote for you by promising to abolish gravity, but they're going to be very pissed off when they hit the ground. Right. They are making these promises that they can turn back the demographic clock, but they can't. It's too late. And you just can't eliminate it through violence. You can't eliminate it through pushing people back. It's not going to make America any whiter. <laughs> they don't seem to understand how genetics work, for one thing. And they never have. That's part of the problem with these 100 percent American ideas. Um, so where we are is that we have a very dangerous, small, violent minority that is in charge of the country that are determined by any means necessary, including the overturning of all democratic norms and rules of law in order to um, hang on by, you know, tooth and nail to um, the last vestige of their sense that they alone should be running things. And they are. So I think it's the death throes of this kind of old school ethno-nationalism, at least I hope it is. But obviously, they're radicalizing people. They're bringing people in. So, you know, who can say? I, I never know in terms of the longitude or longitude, whatever the right pronunciation is, a longevity of, of America first, whether to take hope or despair from the fact that it doesn't go away. Obviously, the reasons for despairing are clear, especially since these guys are in charge right now. But the fact that it's always been there also means that this is less of an aberration than people think it is. It means we fought it off before. It means we know how to fight it off. Now we've got different problems than we had before, and we don't have the weapons we used to have to create national consensus like a unified media. So that's a huge problem. Um, so I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but we have um, won these battles before. It will take a titanic resistance, as Dorothy Thompson, a great journalist who I who I spent some time with in the book, um, she said it was a titanic resistance to fight off fascism in the in the 30s and 40s, and and we will clearly need such a titanic resistance again. But it's also worth reminding people that Donald Trump was not voted in by 50% of the American people. Not only did he lose the popular vote, as everybody knows, except his supporters who can't seem to 
keep track of that idea. But of course, only 50% of the American population voted. So Donald Trump was voted in by 25% of the American population. So it's a minority, a violent minority, as I said, but it is a minority. It's an you know increasingly extremist minority. And it's also the case that since Trump's election in 2016, the Republican Party has lost 15% of its membership. So it is clear whatever the consolidation or, or influence of Trump's Republican support in the sense that Trumpists are getting more Trumpist and you can't do anything to make them rethink their Trumpism, there are a lot of Republicans trumping ship. So I think we have to take hope from those signs. And then the final sign that we have to take hope from, and we'll just have to see what happens in the midterms, is young people. There will be 4 million uh, new voters in at the midterms, young people who are not eligible to vote in 2016 who will be eligible to vote this November. If we can get those 4 million kids into the ballot booths, none of them are going to vote for Trump, I mean, maybe four of them or something. I mean, they're overwhelmingly against him. The Parkland survivors are not just agitating for gun control. They are also agitating for the um, voter registration of young people. They understand that that's how change will be made. So they're trying to get 18-year-olds to vote. And in 2020, there's going to be many more millions of 18-year-olds who will be eligible to vote. Um, They all grew up with Obama as president. Uh, They have no political memory before Obama. So to them, there is nothing weird about having a black president. To them, the aberration is this administration, and they want to get rid of it. So I've been talking to Sarah Churchwell. We've been talking about her book, Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Sarah, thanks so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.